Hey guys, so this podcast originally aired on the About Abroad podcast hosted by Chase Warrington. I was on the podcast not too long ago and it was just an awesome conversation with Chase I wanted to share with you guys. Topics range from everything from motorcycling across Africa to remote team working. Chase lives in Germany with his wife and family and has been in the remote game for a while. So it's just a fascinating conversation and I hope you guys enjoy. Man, so I have to say, like, I've been so excited about this conversation because you, our mutual friend, Mitko, who introduced me to your websites, accounts, all of that, I started playing around and looking in there and I was like completely fascinated from the moment one. So I've personally been looking forward to this quite a bit. Uh, appreciate it, Jason. Excited to be here. Yeah, man. I just want to start really quick with like, if you go to your Twitter profile, there's a tweet pinned to it, which I'll let you describe what's happening here because I I just couldn't stop watching it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's it's, so I was uh, motorcycling through Uganda and I got cast in a Ugandan music video. And there's these three kids who are in the dance group. They're a famous dance group. It's called Masaka Kids. They're online. And these kids rock. They're five years old. They dance better than any of us. So I would ask, hey, can you be on your bike and like, could do this move for the music video while we dance. I was like, hell yeah, I could do that. And so we recorded it and that's what's pinned on there. So it's a very cute dance by very cute kids who know exactly what they're doing with hip hop dancing. Dude, you did all right. I mean, it looks like you, Thanks, you held your own, you know, I tried. You, can, you can move a little. Yeah, that it's the funny part is that they wanted to do a couple of shoots. So they taught me the night before one dance. I'm not a great dancer in general, but like I'm fine. So I learned the dance and I was stoked. So I'm like, all right, cool, I'm gonna be in this music video. So I practiced a lot at nighttime. And what happens with dancers, so I've learned, is like the choreographer will be like, okay, we're going to change everything on the day of, and you guys will just understand it because you're dancers. So I get there, and I'm like, I've practiced for so long hours to learn this routine, and then on, for the actual dance, the choreographer's like, okay, we're going to change the whole thing. We're going to do this, this, and this. And I'm like, dude, I can't do this. Like, this, this, is, this is what I do. I just learned this last night. I barely remember it. But I tried it, and I got some other good footage as well. Oh, man, that'll do the social media handles well, I think, some content like that. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Oh, that's great. And so is this like, this was on a a motorcycle trip across Africa, is that correct? Yeah, I traveled through Tanzania, Rwanda, Uganda. So that was most of the trip I did, mostly in just East Africa. It's not all of Africa. Just East Africa. Yeah, just your casual motorcycle trip across. Usually everyone does it, right? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Where'd you go? I'm, I'm curious. Like, I, I think if the average person listening would hear that and be like, "What? wait, what? <laughs> you, you traveled across East Africa. Like what? So let's back up because I'm just super curious. Where did this journey begin in terms of like, how did you come to decision that you were going to ride a motorcycle across Africa? And then geographically, let's move from there. Yeah. So believe it or not, this is my first motorcycle trip. <laughs> I, I was riding on the trip and someone's like, you really chose to do like Rwanda, which is called the land of a thousand hills as your first trip and I was like yeah I, I didn't really think this one through here I, I was kind of terrified of it but like I was going to go to East Africa anyway so I was going to go travel through there with my girlfriend then now fiance so we were going to go travel through East Africa and I just always wanted to do a motorcycle trip in another country that was on my bucket list I got my license two years ago and never really did it so then I was reading about like Rwanda and, and biking in like Tanzania and East Africa and a lot of people had done it before and the roads in Rwanda are actually some of the best roads in the world and so I thought okay this is a good place to start so kind of just start biking there and got like a, a tour guide initially to go bike around there and really got like my handle around it and it was one of the coolest things I've done just because you're like at least where I started was in Rwanda for it so the trip was Tanzania Rwanda and then up to Uganda and Rwanda was where I did most of the biking and first of all the roads are incredible the people are incredibly friendly and it's not many tourists there it's one of those things where like you stop on the bike and all these kids pick out 
from the villages and they're like, oh, who's on their bike, like stopping in front of the road? And they're like, they're very shy. So they'll kind of like crowd around and I brought candy to give to them and they like freak out. And so it was just like one of those really cool things. I'm like, man, this is, this is awesome. This is different. So I was, I was really, really enjoying it. Man, that sounds like such a cool experience in a in a very different way, but at least on the candy and the kids front. I did the Machu, Machu Picchu hike or one of the Machu Picchu hikes and they like the guide advised like before you come, like bring some, you know, candies or, you know, coloring books or something like kind of describe the situation where you're going to be walking through these little villages in the deep up in the Andes where there's no there's nothing like that. And the only time they get stuff like this is when hikers pass through. And so bring some of that stuff. It was one of it was the cool. It was probably the coolest part of the the whole experience like you know com- even comparing to seeing the sunrise coming from from the hills over Machu Picchu like that that experience interacting with the kids seeing how happy they were uh, to see to see foreigners to see like people from other parts of the world and we had a super diverse group in our little group of 10 or 15 that was doing it yeah it was fascinating man that was such a cool aspect I'm still getting chills thinking about that and kind of what you said because that's what the benefit of travel is in my opinion right you see people who are in different situations from you still happy they're just in different situations you kind of realize for me a couple things. Number one, you could be happy in any situation. And number two, not everyone's as fortunate as us, right? There's a lot of things we kind of take for granted where a lot of these kids don't even know these things exist. Um, so that I feel like is like the epitome of what you get from traveling is you see things like that, you experience things like that, and it's pretty humbling. Yeah, that's why they say it's like one of the best forms of education, because I think you can't really learn without experiencing it. You know, you can't really get that perspective from a book. Like you get out there and you see it and feel it and experience it. You go, okay, this is different. And it puts a lot of perspective on life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you could just get into so many different situations. Like when I was in Africa, I got in to go stay with the last hunter gatherer tribe. And we went like on a hunt. I was there with them for 24 hours. I like stayed in a hut. It was just wild. And that's something where... Like, how do you fall into that as an option besides just being there? Right. So it's just things like that just happen. That's not like a, a Airbnb experience. You know, you don't, you don't, you don't go sign up like, yeah, I think I'll do the uh, African hunting tribe. Yeah. Yeah. Journey let me, today. Let me yeah that that, came with my credit card. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Wait. So that was that on the same trip? The same trip that was in Tanzania. It's the uh, the Hudza tribe. If you look them up online, the Hudzabi, I think is what their the full name is. So we have one of the last hunter gatherer tribes in Africa. So they live um, straight up in the bush. They hunt. So all they eat is meat. That's it. So meat, maybe some plants, and that's kind of it. Um, and yeah, they just that's kind of what they do. That's how they live, and they kind of move around. There's few different like families in the Hudzabi tribe in the area. So I was with one group, and you know they're there. And then maybe a few days later they go somewhere else. They just follow where the food is. Do they have like permanent structures that they're living in or do they take everything like completely nomadic? It's no, it's pretty nomadic. It's like they're staying places from like a short as a week to like, I'm guessing a couple months because some of the the huts are mud huts, you know, so like twigs in the mud. So clearly not structured, but like long enough where you're not just sleeping there. Right. So yeah, like partially nomadic and then partially they're just, they found good spots. And how much time did you spend with them? I was there just 24 hours. 24 um, hours. Man, I get to stay longer. That Here's a funny story. So I met them and I met the leader and uh, I had a translator with me. And so he was teaching me how to say, my name is, the way to say my name is in their language is Akanabe. And so they speak with clicks. Like the, he was telling me, the leader told me his name. And then he's like, okay, what's your name? And I said, Akanabe Neil. And then he starts laughing and he's like, goes to get his friends. He's like, come on, say it again, say it again. And I was like, Akanabe Neil. And they start cracking up. And I'm like, okay, like what, what did I say? Everyone's dying over here. And I've been telling everyone all day, my name is Neil. And and they kind of signal to like scratch area. And my translator is like, hey, the word Neo means vagina in their language. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> the whole this is probably the highlight of their year, man. Oh, like, no. uh, that had to be just such a such a funny moment for them. Well, all these kids, I've never even met them there, but from the Hazabi tribe, we're going out to me like you're Neil, you're Neil. I'm like, no, 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 that's not that's not my name. Sorry, like it's that's not you. They call me in. I'm in. <laughs> so I had them give me like a proper Hazabe name instead. I'm like, yeah, I'm not going around saying my name is Vagina. So please give me something else. <laughs> So they they talk in clicks, but they like there is kind of like two forms of the same language. Like they can alphabetize the vocabulary as well. Yeah, yeah. Like reading, writing, no. It's partially clicks and partially just whatever language they have. So the translator happened to live kind of in the same, like not in the same tribe as them, but like surrounding neighborhood. That's kind of where he grew up, and that was like a modern society, right? So he knows their language, but he also speaks Swahili, which is the language in Tanzania. So yeah. Man, that's got to be, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that's the most unique travel experience I've ever heard anybody Same. talk. Like I've heard yeah. some, some really funny ones, like some some out there ones. I mean, I had someone on the podcast that was like, his name's Joe and he's like living in the South Pole and oh, like cool. literally just like, like living on the, like right on the South Pole, not even just like on the edge of Antarctica, like he's deep in Antarctica. And that was pretty, you know, that was pretty unique, but I, I'm pretty sure like I've never met anybody that spent a night in the bush with an African tribe. So, yeah. I mean, that's pretty sweet. I uh, appreciate it. It's one of the coolest things I did. And I think just quizzing them about like their life like well, why don't you guys use technology like you you clearly see it on my phone here right like what what's your thought process behind this and it's kind of fascinating to hear some of their takes on it what what it, what was their take like is there because i think maybe the outside perception might be like oh they don't know that this exists but like they do know you're, they know or, or do they not i don't know you tell me no like i went in there being like hey they probably don't know about all these modern comforts they're gonna be blown away they're gonna see my phone and be like this is sick like i love this like that's what i thought going into it uh, and I know they've met other foreigners. It's not like they've never seen the phone, but like clearly there's a reason why they're not going to modern technology. And I thought it was just, they didn't know about it. So I asked them and they said, no, no, we see, we, we see everything, but like, we're perfectly happy as we are. Like, what's the, like, why do I need more comforts? And the, you know, they sit on the ground in front of the fire. Uh, and I said, why don't you like, what about chairs? Why don't you just get chairs? And they're like, we're fine. Like we're happy right now. Why do we like, what, why do we need something else? Uh, and then it kind of struck me like, oh, actually the Western world oftentimes optimizes for convenience. It seems everything we do is for convenience, a better car, a nicer car, more luxurious has better seating. Like a lot of things are just for convenience. They don't operate that way. They operate on what do I want to do? What do I like to do? And it's very day by day. Like literally they're just very much in the present because like, what food do I get today? That's what I eat. So I said, Hey, what would make you happiest? And they said, a lot of me, nothing else, like nothing else, like just a lot of me, uh, that's what we want. So it was just, it was just an interesting shift of like what they value. And I think a large part of it was also like the community they're in, like they're in a community and they sing every night, they hang out with each other. And because of that, if you're in a community and everyone's happy, you want to stay in the community. And so some of them have gone to the outside world. Um, they get recruited by the military because they're really good in the bush and they come back, they escape the military and come back and live with the Hadzabe. So Wow, man, it's fascinating. I, it kind of brings something to mind. I read this article recently that was talking about like mental health in the Western world and how this this concept of like poor mental health and, and even going as far as like suicide doesn't exist in those tribes and these like places where they don't have these outside influences. It goes like deeper into like basically the places where you have like the highest level of the highest rates of suicide are in the most affluent countries in the world. And that's because we have this like comparative aspect to our personalities where we see 
people with more and we want more. So when you see people who are pretty much when everybody's kind of on the same playing field and you have fewer things that you're striving for, then it reduces that innate thing inside of us that tells us like, oh, I'm I'm lesser than. And so they live happier. And if so fewer things, happier life. And it sounds so cliche and kind of like someone might say that's ridiculous. Someone might say it's obvious, but it was really interesting to see the dots connect there. Yeah, I, I totally believe it. Like when you say that, that makes a lot of sense. And it's it's one of those experiences for me with this one where I'm like, I had to fly to the middle of Africa to visit an almost extinct group of people to learn this simple fact. Like you don't need to compare, you don't need stuff. And you, you know, you be in the present. Like it's such simple concepts, but something that we kind of forget in the Western world. And so, so obvious to them. And also just going kind of like to the practical when you think about like a chair. Well, if you're nomadic, you got to drag a chair around with you. Like, you know, you know, like fewer things. This is, yeah, I don't want that, man. That's, that seems like a burden, not, not something that I, I need. Did you actually, you sought out to do that? Like, did you go on that trip to, to do this thing or did you stumble across it on your motorcycle trip and like, well, I got to do that. I mean, actually, yeah. How'd that come about? Yeah, no, that, that was more of an organized thing. I didn't know about it ahead of time until I was like looking into the trip. So it wasn't like I stumbled into a tribe and be like, hey, can I live with you for 24 hours? Like it wasn't like that because you need a permit to visit these people. So I did a buddy of mine who I met while traveling through an entrepreneur group. He helps run some safaris actually in Tanzania. So he has a lot of the ins and connections there. So I was t- talking about the trip and what I want to do. And he's like, hey, dude, I actually have an end to go with the Dalbe tribe and you can stay with them overnight. So just like I luckily just because I was in the right circle and met someone who had it in to get the permit and to like actually be able to go see them. That's wild, man. Very interesting parallel again with my Peru trip. We, we went to like, we did half the trip in the Andes and half the trip in the Amazon jungle area. And we were went on this, we signed up for this like kind of oddly posh experience, I get Like it was weird. Like it, we got on like one of these little canoe boats and went up the river and stayed at this like hotel in the like kind of like a jungle lodge, I would describe it. It was kind of primitive, but also kind of like, I, like not, nice in a way. Yeah, It had like all the amenities, but like you were still like you were, there were lots of signs like beware of tarantulas and and snakes and things like that. So you're like, you know, you knew you're in the jungle, but anyway, like we signed up for, I don't know, let's say it was like a week to be there. And it ended up that most people only like they brought you in, in a group and then everybody like left. So people bought like three day packages, four day packages, seven day. So we ended up being the only ones left in our group for like several days. And so we just had this guide that was there with us. And he was like, you guys are the only ones left. Everybody else is gone. Like, what do you guys want to do? And we were like, well, I don't know. What do you suggest? And he was like, well, it's not really like on the itinerary kind of thing. But one of the guys that works here at the Jungle Lodge, his family is like, like they live here in the like in the jungle. And like, they're, they're like tribes people that live in the jungle. It's just a little family. We could see if we could go hang out with them for the day. And we were like, yeah, uh, that I think he was kind of expecting, like, I know you probably won't be into this, like, you know, but, but would you want to do it? And we we're like, yeah, man. And sign me up. That sounds amazing. So we went and spent the day with this family. It was like, you know, a patriarch and matriarch and like their three kids. And then those kids each had like one or two kids. And um, so it's just this little family living in like these little huts. And they they had homemade bows, like handmade bows and arrows. And they we shot bows and arrows with them. And there were like this monkeys. This is in Peru? Yeah, this is in Peru. And uh, wow. And they also had like, they were, they really, they eat a lot of monkey. Like it's one of the things they, they liked hunting. And they were showing us which monkey 
cookies they like to eat. And they, and like, actually, we were sitting around. They uh, they shot. The other cool thing to me was they shot fish with a bow and arrow. So, yeah. So they were like fishing with bow and arrow. And then they would cook the fish over the fire. And that's when the monkeys would come. Kind of like we would experience like birds or something. And they were so annoyed by them. I'm sitting there like, this is the cutest thing. Like these little capuchin monkeys are wanting to eat and uh, eat our fish. And they're like, oh, these, these damn monkeys, like make them go away. And anyway, yeah, I mean, that was, that was just such a epic day. And your, your story like brings that back to me. It's been many years now, but it brings that back. Things like what you said makes me want to like go fly to Peru and go to the Amazon and like find people like that, right? Like that's incredibly fascinating to me, to meet people who just have such different backgrounds, like the way they think, the way they grew up, the way they currently live is so different. And in the same vein, we're probably maybe very foreign to them. I don't really know. They probably get a lot of the tourists as well. So it's kind of like, I feel like a mutual fascination at some point. And I think that's the coolest part is like, I want to do more of that. I think early on in traveling, I was doing a lot of like, you backpacking, you do hostel hop, and then you graduate into co-living places. You go to Airbnbs and you kind of like, you're living somewhere else, but you're also working full time and you're kind of doing a lot of, I don't know, you're just living, right? You're in a cooler place where you're living. Uh, I've kind of come to realization like that's still fun for me, but I don't do that as much now. I have like a home base properly, but I do love if now if I could find experiences like what you just mentioned of like, how do I get into that more? That's what I want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I really love the like living for me. I get a lot of joy out of like living abroad, like having that base. And then because I'm kind of I'm getting that like basic experience every day. You know, when I go to the grocery store, I'm challenged by like the language or I see something unique and different kind of every day that's that kind of lights me up. So that's that's good. But then taking those wild excursions from that home base and instead of trying to chase those like daily and backpacking and hopping from hostel to hostel, you're, you're right. It's like a, it's a graduation. And, uh, I'm, I'm in that stage of my career in, in this, I guess. Yeah. It truly is a circle, right? You kind of start one place and you kind of keep going and figure out like, I know a guy who's been nomading for 10 years. Uh, and I know people who last lasted, you know, three months and they're like, Oh, it's not for me. I think both are fine. It's just, there's always a start and end and it just depends where and that you fall. What's your, so what's your cadence like now? Cause I, I'm also, I, I would love to use that actually as a kind of like a segue to get into what you do because it allows this cadence, whatever it ends up being. But it's, it's kind of fascinating that you're like running remote businesses while you're traveling a good bit. And, and also I guess as part of that, where's your home base? Yeah. So I, I'm currently based in Los Angeles. This is where I'm from originally. And this is going to be home base for now. My uh, my girlfriend has a normal job. She's she's a doctor, so she cannot be remote right now. Although we both love to travel and I'm sure we'll do it at some point. But honestly, it's been kind of nice being back here and like having this as a home base. My family's around here. Uh, I can take care of my elderly parents as well. So it's been actually pretty nice. Uh, but yeah, I originally was moving fast like anyone, like three weeks in the country, go, go, go. Over time, you slow down, slow down, slow down. So I was doing, for the longest time, I was doing like, you know, three months at a time, three months in one place, go to another place, three months there, go to another place, three months there. Um, now I'm in the phase of, hey, I'm going to be back in, in a post-COVID world. Uh, I'll, this is going to be my home base where I'm from, Los Angeles. And then I'll do trips from here. So I just went on this Africa trip. I went to Africa and like, I, well, actually, this one, I moved faster than I ever have. I think went to like 10 countries, went up to like Israel through Palestine, like over to Jordan. It was just like a bunch of stuff. But that one was like a three, four month trip. So I'll do that, kind of come back over here to home base. But I would, yeah, I, I feel like after COVID, it was a weird identity shift where now I don't consider myself like a, a quote unquote digital nomad. Now I just like, I'm a guy who travels a lot. That's that's the difference. I like shed that other identity. So this is home base. I, I had someone say to me the other day, it, it just totally put it in perspective because I think you and I have been living in this world of digital nomads and long-term travelers, however you want to identify people. And this guy, uh, we were talking for like a minute and he was like, wait a second, 
are you one of those digital nomads? <laughs> and, I was like, and I was like, first I was like laughing because I'm thinking, is it that fresh of a, a concept? And then, and then second, I was like, am I? I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of in the same place for like a long time. I've been living in the same apartment in Valencia for like four years. I don't know if I could say that. I, and I, did, I don't know. It's just, it was hilarious to be, to be like called out like that. You're one of those. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard about you. I read about you on Forbes. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty, pretty good. I like that. I like that cadence though. Do you, I'm curious. So your fiance is, is back there. Like if you don't mind sharing, cause I think people struggle with this, like, you know, how to do this lifestyle with family and relationships and everybody's got their own ebbs and flows. So like you took off for several months. Did, did she come with you or were you? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So like earlier on, or I had other girlfriends who were also nomadic. That's a different story, right? They could travel with you. And that's what I was doing for years. I'm traveling for seven years. So with this girlfriend, fiance, she, yeah, we kind of just see long distance while I was traveling. And I wouldn't be gone as much. Like I felt like luckily it kind of happened at a point where I also didn't want to be like backpacking nomading. It was just been doing it for a long time. I'm like, okay, I kind of, I'm feeling that this is something I don't want to do anymore. So I've slowed down. For on this longer trip, she did come with me because she finished her um, residency program and had a gap before her job. So luckily we were able to take time off and actually go together. But yeah, it's going to be, it'll be like a tough one. And I think at least for me, she loves to travel. So we'll do as much as we can, but like I will have to be okay with me traveling alone if I want to. And uh, she'll have to be okay with that as well if that's what we both decide to do. But I, I think I'm more, I'm going to see how I feel right at times. Like I, don't, I actually don't know if I'm going to want to go to three, four months extended trips anymore. I just, I don't know if that's going to call it to me anymore. Uh, so we'll see how it goes. I can relate to that 100%. It's a, it's a weird transition. And there, you mentioned like the word identity before, which weirdly comes into play because it's like, it has, it does become a part of your identity. Like this is what I do. And then you find yourself at some point, like, do I even like doing this? Like, is this, is this what I want to keep doing? Or am I just doing it yeah. and, and you have to go through that transition. I feel like when I, and I, I'm only saying this because I've been through this, uh, that you self-identify by travel. I am a digital nomad or I, ha I run a travel blog exclusively or I don't know, like I see a lot of people online who are tying their identity to the lifestyle and it feels dangerous to me. And I know because I've done that. Then all of a sudden, if you stop traveling, if COVID happened and you can't travel, what are you now? You now your identity's floating in the air, right? So it's just, it's a little bit of a dangerous paradox of like identifying yourself by your lifestyle. That's why now I like to say, like, I'm just a guy who enjoys traveling, right? Traveling is one identity I could take on, but that's not it. So it's, it's a mental shift. It took me a while to get to. One of your other identities is like entrepreneur, I think, uh, if that's yeah, fair. Yeah, probably and, the focus um, right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's dive into that because I think one of the fascinating things about your story is that you're running a remote business and, or maybe multiple, I'm not even sure. So we can dive into that, but like the, this whole concept of remotifying businesses that were once just, it was a standard that it was going to be bricks and mortar and in a town and, and maybe every town has one or a hundred of them, but like, you know, they're going to have an office and you're going to have to go in and clock in nine to five and their transition. A lot of these are being transitioned to some kind of remote setup that you can do from anywhere, which is empowering people who want to identify as digital nomads or remote workers or whatever to, uh, to live and, and, you know, call home wherever they want. So I feel like you kind of epitomize that, but I'd love to hear from your mouth kind of how you describe it. Yeah, absolutely. So I currently run Made This Franchise, which is a fully remote cleaning franchise focused on residential cleanings and Airbnb cleanings. So I have two corporate locations, five franchise locations. The franchisees are people who for right now want to escape the nine to five. They want to buy into a Made This Franchise pretty much copy what I've done in their local market and also have the ability to be remote. 
So it is what was once, like you said, a local business. It's a cleaning business, a local cleaning business, but I've figured out a way to do it remotely. And a lot of it came from, um, I was working in private equity before, so tech VC, and I was there for about four years. And I started this as a side hustle while I was working there. Uh, I literally came across a post on Reddit of a guy who started a cleaning company. I'm like, oh, I'll try this out. And it started to work. I started to work. It just started to work by starting the cleaning company. I saw a post of a guy uh, who did the same thing on Reddit. So that's how I came up with the idea. But yeah, before that, I was trying a bunch of things to be to have like a remote first business, right? Like most people think I got to go in to get into e-commerce, digital marketing, drop shipping, blogging. I was doing all of that and none of it really worked for me because it's a hyper competitive market. Now that I, now that I know why my, my why made this worked. So when I started made this, it started really working and I realized it's because your local competition um, kind of sucks. They don't know what they're doing. Uh, so always using just normal standard marketing tactics that would work in e-commerce and marketing. And they were really, really working in local business. So then it was just a matter of, okay, can I actually do this remote? And eventually figured out like, oh, I could actually run this local biz remote. That's kind of when like the world opened up. I'm like, oh my God, no one's no one's doing this in a big way, right? There's a huge opportunity here. And the competition is just very, very old school compared to a lot, well, compared to what a lot of other freelancers go up against, right? Which is competing against the entire world. Right. Okay, cool. So how, I mean, I'm super curious, how does it actually work? Like how do you run a cleaning business remotely and, and from a distance? Yeah, so the cleaners go straight from their home to the job site. Um, they provide the supplies and you know we, we pay them, so it compensates for everything. So that's as simple as that, right? I think this works not just for cleaning, but any home service business or any business where the technicians go straight from their home to the job site and that doesn't require a crazy amount of overhead. Cleaning supplies are not expensive. If you do mobile car detailing, not expensive for supplies. Window washing, not expensive for supplies. Pet walking, not expensive. Like there's so many different industries that this remote local type of model can work for. For me, I chose cleaning because that's what I started off with by, by coincidence. So the cleaners go straight to the job site. Now we do all interviews virtually, right, through Zoom. So we have a pretty extensive routing process to get the cleaners. And of course, customers, we don't do in-person estimates at all. Only phone sales are only straight to online booking. And a lot of what we focus on is Airbnb. So we're the first and only Airbnb cleaning franchise that exists. So a lot of those clients are, you know, kind of more of a B2B sale anyways. Um, so those ones we could actually like hook into their calendar and automatically schedule cleanings with that and just automate the process. <laughs> That's awesome. I guess, yeah. And, and like when you step back and think about it, like you don't physically have to be there to manage the the people that are going out to do this. You're basically providing the platform for the cleaners, the people that want to have a job and want to be employed and get paid and matching them with the customers and, and then facilitating that. Exactly. Managing the middle part. And like, it's kind of like a seesaw, right? There's never a point where it's, hey, this is smooth and perfect. It's usually like, okay, we have too many cleaners. Oh, wait, now we have too many customers. Now we have to manage like the scheduling. So like, that's where the operations and, you know, the actual work comes into play. And that's what the franchisees deal with as well. You know, that's, that's what they mostly focus on. We handle a lot of the marketing and stuff for them. So you did, you franchised it like it's it's yours. You have your own shop or whatever, but then you also franchised it out to other people. Yes, now it's a national franchise. So we're in five locations, five locations across the country. I'm trying to count me one, two, three, four, four states, five locations. Wow. We'll be right back to the show after a quick break for a note from our sponsor. 
This episode is brought to you by my good friends over at Greenback Tax. As an American citizen, I'm from one of only two countries in the entire world that requires I pay taxes on my global income, regardless of which country I'm actually living in. So when I started my expat journey back in 2015, I knew my tax situation was about to get complicated. Fortunately, I discovered Greenback and I've never looked back. Greenback is 100% focused on helping U.S. expats with their tax situation. And to date, they've filed almost 50,000 returns for nearly 15,000 happy customers from more than 200 different countries. After seven years working together, I can say with confidence that they make one of the most painful parts of life abroad an absolute breeze with their automated systems, friendly advisors, and expertise in the very specific niche of U.S. expat taxes. Also, for those of you who may have fallen behind on your taxes and or you're trying to get ahead of tax season in 2023, Greenback has your back here as well. They can assist with late filings to ensure you don't encounter any problems with the IRS and to make sure you start 2023 off right. Tax season is on the horizon. Learn more about about Greenback today by going to greenbacktaxservices.com via the link in the show notes. Hey guys, so many of you write in asking how to support the show best. And if you are listening and made it this far into the episode, then I'm going to presume that perhaps you're one of those people that wants to help. So if that's the case, the best thing you could do right now would be to open up the app that you're currently using to listen to this episode. Go to the little arrow thing that allows you to share, select it and share it to one of your social media networks. That would be a huge, huge help. You can feel free to tag me at DC Warrington and I'll slap you a virtual high five from wherever I am in the world. Thank you so much for the support. We really appreciate it. And I hope you enjoy listening to the rest of this episode. So who's the who's the right, you know, we're thinking about the About Abroad audience here, people that want to find location independence, they want to live abroad, uh, they want to spend some time, you know, a good bit of time traveling. Um, what would you advise them from your experience, you know, thinking about, I mean, it makes sense to use your example and, and your business as the example, even perhaps more generally speaking, like getting into this mindset of running a business, a, a previously localized business, now running it remotely. What, what what type of people should be considering this? What should be some of the things that they should kind of keep in the back of their mind when they're when they're starting to evaluate? Yeah. So the things to keep in your mind, um, I'll say the downsides first, just so everyone's aware. You are when you start it, you're gonna be time zone bound. That doesn't mean you have to stay only in your time zone. But for example, when I traveled first, I mostly did Latin America because I was working on Los Angeles Standard Time. Asia was out of the question, right? Because I needed to be up to actually run operations when I started. So I couldn't be 14 hours ahead in Asia. I did that much later on when I actually had team members to do it. So it's definitely possible. Possible, but it's not something you could start with. Um, you're also dealing with people, right? So in people intensive to business, things are going to go wrong. That's just the nature of the beast. So those are kind of the downsides. Uh, the upsides would be, I think it's quicker to make your first buck, right? It's not a competitive market. You have a moat around you, which is your geography. People who want to go remote don't think, let me start a local business. No one does that. Therefore, there's a huge opportunity because this is kind of a hidden gem. You could start a local business, actually be remote, and you're only competing at your local market. And most of these guys don't even know what they're doing. So I think that's the huge competitive advantage. That's what's going to allow you to make your first dollar much, much quicker. It's probably one of those businesses in where, well, I should say it this way. My philosophy for business is um, I like the process of business and I like business. The end product is for me a little bit less relevant. And I think for a lot of people who their goal is to be remote or have their business for a purpose, that's the correct mentality, in my opinion. Um, but if you want to try to find your passion business, say, I love, I don't know, making this specific product to sell on Etsy. Like maybe you go do that. Like you're not going to be happy doing this. But if you're looking for a business as kind of a gateway to achieve life goals, I think, in my opinion, I think this is a great fit because you could actually make your first dollar much faster. 
Yeah, we say a lot of times in uh, in like the remote work and like making distributed teams work and all this um, in tech that the the boring solution is often the right solution. Like it's not, it doesn't sound real sexy to be like, you know, yeah, like I manage a, a cleaning company. Sounds really sexy to be like, yeah, I, I, I'm a painter and I just, I, I create what calls to my heart and I sell it on Etsy. And like that, that's a very passionate story. But like when you look at the balance sheet, it's, it's going to be quite different probably. So, I mean, I think the boring solution can often often be the, the one that is your your ticket to success in a lot of ways. Yeah, well said, man. And I, it, it's truly one of those things where like when I started, I was younger and, you know, you quit your job and I was working in private equity. I'm like, okay, I need to help people. I run a cleaning company. So same thing you said, it's not, doesn't sound sexy. So I was like, okay, maybe I'll like create a holding company and tell them I run this holding company. Like you try to make different ways to make, and I'm just like, boring is sexy. Like this, this is just what it is. And like, surprisingly, when you tell people, they're like, oh yeah, man, these local businesses just print money. That's such a good good idea. So you're like, oh, this is actually people get it, right? This, there's not much ego involved anymore. Dude, two two stories that, that that brings to mind that are kind of like intertwined. So my the first chapter of my career was like working in financial services, uh, insurance world. And I met this guy who turned, he was like working at this big insurance company and making really good money and all that. But he was like, you know, having to put on a suit and tie, go into the office every day and he hated it. And this is back in, I don't know, I'm going to say like 2009, maybe. Um, so pretty, pretty decent ways back like definitely before the whole like remote revolution. And he, his customers were insurance agents, um, like people selling insurance. And he saw them and was like, you know, yeah, I mean, they all get up, they go into an office every day and like they, they meet with their customers. But he's like, I just don't know, maybe you don't have to do that. So he built uh, an insurance agency, which is like to separate for people who aren't familiar with it. Like there's the insurance company that does the insuring, but they often outsource the sales aspect to the agent, the person you walk into and talk to and ask and buy the insurance from. So he just created the online version of that. Super basic. Like the most, like he had like a two page, you know, two, two landing, a landing page with like two different options, like about us and get a quote. And it was like, just like the most boring, basic, like auto insurance or something. He set it up and he's, and he's like, uh, yeah, I, he, he loved to surf. And so he moved to some Island. I can't remember where it was, ran this thing remotely and was just like process. And he was making really good money. Like he, he was like, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not an executive at a, at an insurance company more. It doesn't look real sexy or really cool, but I sell auto insurance online and uh, I go surfing every day. <laughs> Dude, that's, that's the lifestyle, right? That's what people are trying to achieve. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's mind blowing. I said I had a, a second story, but, um, now it escapes me because that one lasted a little longer than I expected. So it'll, maybe it'll come back. Yeah. The more I'm in business, the more I realize like there's so many ways to make money. There's an unlimited amount of ways to make money and there's so many opportunities everywhere. So, you know, oftentimes like at least early in my career, I was getting really focused. I'm like, okay, this is it. This is the golden ticket. But the reality is one thing doesn't work. I guarantee there's another way to make a million dollars. There's another way to make a million dollars. Like it's just infinite. And stories like, like what you just said or examples of that is like you're just in the know in this tiny tiny niche and you make a bunch of money have a lifestyle business you don't need to like reinvent the wheel to actually do this just there's people already doing these types of things so definitely in lots of ways yeah, that, that, that's exactly what it was, actually. That's what I was going to say is as part of that job, I got to see a lot of the like paperwork and the financials behind some of these businesses. And often they would be like, you know, you'd be like, dude, this dry cleaner makes $2.8 million a year. Like what are the like Tom's hardware stores raking in $7 million a year selling like hammers? What? And uh, and now you hear about people, you know, oh, yeah, I sell, uh, you know, a million dollars worth of, uh, of, you know, water bottles from my e-commerce store. 
or or whatever. So I mean, people are fi- you're figuring it out, and it, I think it's one of the cool things we we throw around this phrase all the time, like democratization of opportunity. But it really, in a lot of ways, is like just opening up this the the internet and the, the revolution around remote work and all this just opened up this Pandora's box of opportunities for people to make money, whether it be their passion or like you know selling nuts and bolts online. Like they're they're figuring out and able to do it from all over. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that, I think that's the coolest part about what we've seen in the last 10 years with how fast technology has moved. And I think that's way why in the local market, people are still kind of living the way they've always done it, right? Because I think the, the the revolution, quote unquote, has happened relatively fast in terms of remote work, in terms of starting online businesses in this with this amount of ease. It's been maybe the last decade, but a lot of these businesses have been around for way more than a decade. They're not going to change. And they're also in a relatively unsophisticated market, right? They're probably generally, it's a much older population. It's kind of the boomer population who run these local businesses. So they're not going to jump on the, the new trend, which has been the trend for a, for a decade at least, but it's just a very old school type of mindset. So those are the places I like to play in as opposed to, hey, this is a new industry, which just started this year and is booming. Everyone's yeah. getting into it. You know, there's not much revolutionized there. <laughs> that's the that's the antithesis of the VC mindset coming out, right? <laughs> like, yeah, like no, no, yeah. oh, let's go back to our roots, man. I'm not into this this shiny new toy. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny because I was like, I don't know, when I worked in VC, like the deals I worked on, we invested like twenty million dollars at least and all together in the fund. I worked on deals like a hundred million, all in like tech companies. Yeah. And I'm like, nope, I don't want to do that. But that's not, that's not the way. It's really funny. I, I have this, uh, people ask me like on my full-time job, you know, I work at Doist, which were the creators of like a couple products. One of them is Todoist, which is a to-do list. Like in, and I mean, it's a little bit more than that, but it's basically a to-do list. And so when people ask what I do, like I can go in like one of two directions and, and one of them is like, yeah, I work for this like startup to scale up, you know, we're just like, we're, we're trying to break into the global market. And, you know, we, we translate our app into like 19 different languages. We're deep into some, some pretty big international markets, you know, competing against Microsoft or the other ones like, yeah, we make a to-do list. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. Like one looks great on LinkedIn and the other one is fine yeah. for everything else. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Why, uh, Chase, how long have you worked there? I've been there for almost seven years. Which is like a, oh, no a way. Whole, years. Wow. it's like a, a whole career in the in the tech world, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and fully remote company, right? How many people are there? Yeah, we're about a hundred people, full hundred full time, in like thirty five different countries. Wow, yeah. and I'm uh, very curious because your role is head of remote. Yeah, yeah, that's that right? my that's my. So what does that <laughs> like, what does that mean? What do you do? Uh, it's a really good question. <laughs> we're we're still trying to figure it out. It's a fair. I mean, I've been in that role for about a year now. And so the idea is that like I split my time about 50-50 between internal operations. So just kind of think about like how does a remote team run? Like what, what makes us a little bit different than a team that all is co-located going to the same place? So my job is to kind of look at the way that we operate as a remote team specifically and how can we up level that. So it, it runs the gamut from like a lot of a lot of different things. That could be like how we actually work, like the tools that we focus on, the the tools that we use, the the rules and best practices around how we collaborate and communicate. It even goes into like culture and like how we connect. Actually, that's something I spend a ton of time on because we're we're a productivity company. Like we're pretty good at work, um, but that kind of work can also get a bit like robotic in a lot of ways too, right? So part of sustainable remote work is making sure that we don't become robots, that we're like, we're connecting, we're having fun together, we're getting to know each other on a personal level, builds trust and, and you know, helps, helps create a better end product 
product in the end. So I focus a lot of my energy on that. And that in and of that, it kind of goes out into how we connect virtually and and in like the, you know, whether it be Zoom meetings or um, cooking classes together or asynchronous games that we play together or like bringing people together co-located. We, we bring everybody together in person a couple times and I, I lead those efforts as well. So that's like 50% of the job. <laughs> yeah. You think of like, I wonder if there's an opportunity to be, uh, I'll say head of remote, but like as an outsourced service. Like, so I was just thinking, because we have a remote team. And by the way, sometimes people think that when you have a remote team, you don't need to work as much in a company culture. I think it's the opposite. You need to go two to three times more because you don't see each other in person. It's very easy to just be behind Slack and just like messaging back and forth. And I think even in my current corporate operations, we kind of fall into that trap occasionally because you have to put effort to build camaraderie. You have to put effort to actually have cultural things happen. And it's difficult, especially if you're a small business of like, okay, who's going to do that? It's going to be the owner um, to actually put those things in the place. And I was just wondering if there's services which exist, which aren't just like, hey, here's a Slack bot you could download, which um, actually allow that to happen. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a ton of really good insights out there from from some of the leading companies in the space. I'd like to think Duist is is one of them, um, and we're, we share a lot. Like we build a ton in public, trying to share like, hey, this is how we're building connections. I could not agree with you more, man. Like it's it's very easy when you have an office. People just walk in, and there's serendipitous conversation, and you you connect with somebody over lunch, and like all those things. Even if even if that's not a really strong culture, there's there's some culture there, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so you're right. Like you have to, you have to intentionally create the opportunities for that to happen when people are working across all time zones. And that, that's our thing is we're, we're not just in 35 countries. We're like literally spread all the way around the world. And so we have people that are working at like crazy hours. And so building connection when somebody, when we literally don't even work at the same time is challenging. So yeah. do you guys use Slack as your central communication? We, we actually built our own tool uh, called Twist. Yeah, oh, wow. So we, so f- it's kind of an interesting, oh, I don't know, maybe it's a boring story, but it's an interesting story because <laughs> I work in this nerdy world. Um, but like basically we built the company running on Slack and it was going fine, but we were like, it's a little too, because of that distribution, because we had people in like all time zones, we were finding that it was too synchronous. Like it was built for teams that are working together at the same time, very like chatty flow of conversation was important. And so we wanted to be hyper asynchronous and like focus on asynchronous communication because of the way we were distributed. So we, we, couldn't find a product at the time. Um, and so we were like, well, we could probably just build one. And like, maybe one day, this is like years ago, we we're like, maybe one day, like other teams will be remote <laughs> and then, and then they'll buy it from us. Like, and we we're like, yeah, that'd be, that'd be hilarious. And, uh, and then the, you know, we built it, we released it, we used it internally for several years and then the pandemic hits and like, you know, hockey stick, like it's got a number skyrocket. Yeah. 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 We've got like uh, hundreds of thousands of people using it. And, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's like, kind of like a, it's a super asynchronous approach to, to Slack in a lot of ways. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's just funny because you say like, you know, you ask like, are there products and tools and services emerging for, to serve these kinds of teams? And it's like five years ago or four years ago, there were none. Like you couldn't, if you had, you had to build your own solutions and, uh, and we're seeing, yeah, lots of them emerge now. It'll be interesting to see what happens with like, of course, pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, a lot of people move to services. But for example, like Basecamp has been around for a long time. That's that's what was first used for remote teams. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of people gravitated towards them, but I'm sure there's nuances which now exist in a remote world where it's only new solutions 
who are thinking about remote teams and how they're built post-pandemic, probably are going to be more suitable as opposed to historic remote solutions. So I'm very interested to see what pops up and what's going to be like the next big one. Because right now it seems like the heavy hitters are mostly the ones which are pre-pandemic in terms of knowledge sharing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, does this a pain you run into? Like uh, you're, you know, you're leading a remote team and I mean, is it, is it something you feel or is it like, you know, the tool sets that you have is working well? You know, for, for what we're doing, it's not as big of an operation, I think, as a lot of other companies are doing, right? We're it, for cleaning, like at least for my LA operations, I don't know, we're doing like probably a hundred thousand a month or so in, in revenue. So it's not like a massive, like, Hey, we're just doing all this crazy stuff with like software. So my team is probably, you know, eight to 10 for the California operations. Um, so it's, it's small enough to be able to keep a remote culture still just by having everyone meet with each other and everyone knows what's going on. Everyone's across different time zones, right? Like my sales are in South Africa. Um, I actually found a, a group of Jehovah's Witnesses over there in South Africa because uh, they're fantastic at sales, right? Like two years of door-to-door selling. Oh, um, yeah. Dude, that's yeah. like the, the, you've, you've trial by fire. They've learned how to sell. <laughs> they have. And like, it's just a great community. So I went, I visited them twice. So and when I was in Africa, I went down to South Africa and hung out with them. We did a whole group outing and like, you know, took them out to an Airbnb and we stayed there for the weekend. So that was nice. So yeah, the teams across multiple different countries, mostly Latin America or South Africa. And it's small enough where it's easy enough to manage the culture. So we haven't really needed to, to build too much, but something I like, I kind of want to systemize more, right? Like just have things automated where I'm not pushing to get culture in the company. It just kind of naturally happens with you that I wrote that I've found to be pretty helpful for a lot of teams, like uh, just a, basically this long extended list and explanation of like all the activities that we do mm-hmm. to, to help people connect, yeah. you know, virtually, in person, asynchronous, synchronous, whatever. And it's just like this extensive list of like, here's all the things we're doing. And, and a lot of that's been learned from the companies like Basecamp and GitLab and, and you know, others. Um, so we've taken, we go out and we look and see what other teams are doing. We're like, oh, that works for them. Let's try it here. Yeah. And uh, we see what sticks. Yeah, no, I'd love to read that. That's perfect. I'm sure it could get some wisdom even for a local business. Yeah. So coming back to to made this, I'm just one question I wanted to ask you is like, do you feel like you can take it on the road with you? Like I know your your lifestyle now is what it is, but when you go traveling for those couple months, um, do you have you taken work on the road or do you check out? Oh no, I take everything on the road. So yeah. I think that's also the benefit of um, building a business with a remote first mentality is if that's the core, you figure out the processes and systems that suit that. So for me, I was when I was building made this, my thought process was if I'm going to take this on the road, I'm going to build it from from scratch in a way that can operate from the road. Right now, that's what we're franchising to people because that's how it was built from the beginning. So even with made this franchise, which is like considered a different business than my California operations, that's still built, built in a remote first way of this has to work remotely or else I'm not doing it. Um, so because of that, everything is built in that way. And like, uh, again, like if you start your own business, you can literally do whatever you want with it. Like maybe like, I'm sure if you can make an argument like Neil, you're probably sacrificing growth by building this in a remote first way. Probably not take that argument, but that's, that's fine. That's not the goal of what I'm doing anyways, is not to like build the biggest company ever. Uh, so based off of that, I will build it in the way I want, which is a remote first company. Uh, so because of that, hundred percent take it on the road. Of course, sometimes like call times get dicey because people are on the East coast time and I'm in like Jordan or like internet connect activity issues. And I'm like, God, this is the worst, but that's just part of the travel game. 
Yeah, yeah, you you signed up for that. Uh, but that's cool. I think that's a really good point that you're like kind of building it from first principles going like, what is important to me? Like, I want to make money. I want to be able to do it remotely. And then you kind of put that at the core and focus all your energy on those two things. And what comes from that is is a lot more important than, for instance, starting with the idea of like, I want to have this mega corporation. I want to make yeah. X or whatever. It's, it's saying, I'm going to pr- optimize this for Absolutely. The and again, world. there's a million ways to make money. You don't have to like follow the blueprint of, okay, get a local storefront and get an office space and have your cleaners report there. Like that's, that's very old school. You really don't need to do that in order to make money. You can make money in a variety of different ways now. Um, so yeah, I think if, if you don't want to be localized only and you don't want a storefront, then pick a business model, which is conducive to that. Right. And there's a lot of different ones that exist. Where's the wildest place you've ever run made this from? Uh, Man, this is that's a good question because the wildest places I've been have no internet, right? Same thing for you, I'm sure. So I'm like, okay, this place with internet as well. I just want I want people to know the extent to it when they get into they they're they're sitting there pondering this, going, "Yes, I'm going to run my hardware store online, and I'm going to be able to go all around the world." And they they need to know the limitations. Like, <laughs> so yeah. Here's, yeah, here's crazy. So I was in Africa and I went to Serengeti National Park because so I went to a proper safari. You know, staying at like literally in the park, and I still got some Wi-Fi. It wasn't great. You know, it was a few hundred kilobytes per second. But I'm like, wow, I'm actually working remotely, and there could be a lion behind that bush over there. Yeah, so it was cool. So I was like. All right, I got to get a picture of this and show the Wi-Fi speed. I'm like terrible Wi-Fi speed, but I was able to send the email, so hey, it works. <laughs> That's epic. And we're kind of coming full circle here, and uh, it's just it's just so cool to think about that trip. And how many months was that? You were between, all this was connected, right? Like that, what you yeah. just said, the motorcycle. Yeah, uh, that was about three months. About three months ish. So I was moving fast. Did you go up into, you said you went up into like Jordan and Israel, Palestine during this time too? Yeah. So we, I went wow. to Israel. I was actually in that region of the world for like three weeks. So I was in Africa for maybe a couple months, something like that. Yeah. So Israel stayed there for three weeks, then crossed over into Palestine. Check that out. A different world over there for sure compared to Israel. And then went over into Jordan and stayed in the desert in Jordan. What, what's the, when you say that like different world compared to Palestine compared to Israel, like can you allow elaborate on that because I know I've not met yeah, many people that have ventured into into Palestine. Let me think. Have you been to an Arab country before? Uh, no. Well, okay. I went to Morocco. Yeah, okay. So you, no. you understand yeah. the feel. There's like yeah. Arabic shops in the front, people are in front of the shops. There's a Medina. There's like vendors who are talking to you. Right? It's very, Arab countries have a very specific feel. I've met many of them, but the ones I've been to, you could kind of sense they're an Arab country um, just because it has that feel versus Israel is in the Middle East, but it's not an Arab country. It has a much different feel, more Western feel. So you literally cross the border. Um, it's a world of a difference. It's more of an Arab culture, uh, but also like they're just not as wealthy as Israel anymore, right? For Palestine. So like the place is a little bit more run down. It's extremely crowded. They don't have much of the land anymore. So there's just a lot of like being in that region of the world was, was fascinating because there's so much history, both current as well as old history of what's going on in that region. You kind of realize on the ground like okay this is what's actually going on so you kind of just are you just much more aware of that when you get to palestine you kind of think it makes you think more about like oh interesting i haven't had to have these thoughts but now that i'm here and i'm seeing everything i'm having these thoughts about like what's actually going on here so it just feels like it's right when you cross the border it feels completely different it feels like an arab country it feels more a little bit more rundown much more highly densely populated as well Uh, and palestinian people can't really go anywhere jordan they can't go to jordan they can't go to israel they're just kind of stuck in this small sliver of land and it becomes a very very densely populated place 
Wow. Was it hard for you to get in? Did you have to do anything special to get in? No, like for Americans, I think it's fine. Uh, you can't go to all parts of Palestine. You can only go to some of them. But yeah, it was, it, was, it was actually pretty easy. What an incredible couple months, man. You accomplished more than, than yeah. in a couple months with a motorcycle than, than I think most do in a lifetime. Like it was, was this a oddly adventurous trip for you or is it just uh, you're just the most interesting man in the world and this is just another three months? <laughs> 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 no, this was for, for sure one of the more interesting trips I've done. And Chase, it's kind of like what we talked about. You kind of elevate, or I should say elevate, you differ in your travel as you go on more, right? So you started as a backpacker, you moved to maybe being in a place longer and working remotely. And now I'm in the current phase or current season of wanting to do more adventurous stuff. So I have done like other adventurous stuff. Most of it was relatively recent. Like I got purposefully stranded on a desert island for 10 days in Panama. Um, so that was in February. Yeah, I got kidnapped on purpose in Salt Lake City. Um, so like there's... These are things I'm gravitating towards now, like experience stuff. And this sounds like very extreme. It's not all extreme, like just more experience based stuff is what I want to gravitate towards. Okay. Yeah. So you are the int- most interesting man in the world. That, that, just, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm trying to be, man. I'm trying. Um, right, we're going to pick, I've, I got to get you out of here. I know. So I just want to pick one of those two, either stranded on an island or kidnapped on purpose. Tell us a little bit about one of those and, and then I'll let you get out of here. Cool. So stranded on an island, I was in Thailand. I got connected to a guy who runs these excursions. So it was part of a proper process, uh, to island survival. And you go with a group and a survival guide on an island off of Panama. No one's there, uh, completely deserted. And the guide will first teach you for five days, like, here's how to survive. Here's how you find water. Here's how you find food. Here's how you set up traps. Here's how to fish. Um, Here's the plans to avoid. Here's how to create shelter, all those type of things. And then the last three days actually is isolation phase. Like, oh, cool. You're off on your own. Um, You don't get anything. I think they they gave me a machete and I had my knife. And from there, you have to like just survive, right? Like you have to go fish. You have to make your shelter. uh, You have to start a fire. So I was doing that. And it was um, like, honestly, it was awesome. Like, of course, parts of it really suck, right? All you could think about is your hunger the whole time, right? So part of that's kind of good because like it makes things very present, kind of going back to how we think about everything as being very present, like we were talking about earlier. All you can think about is where am I going to get food in the next hour? That's it, right? So you're hyper focused on the present and it makes you very, I felt so much less anxiety. I don't know how to describe it when I got back because you you spend three days only focused on the next hour. That's it. You're not thinking about like, what's my company going to do in a week? What's their growth plan? Like it's just literally, where am I going to get food? Life becomes so simple at that point. Um, And I got like, I got bit up like crazy. I couldn't catch any fish. So I was eating like coconuts and snails most of the time. Like it was just, I was like in it, in it. Um, But it was very just, cool, unique, hard experience to go through. Uh, I'm, I've recently did it, so I wouldn't say I'll do it again immediately, but like maybe in the future I might give it a shot again. But for now, it was just a cool, hard experience I did. That uh, that mindset of being just focused on food brings us back to the tribe in the bush in Africa where they're like, what would you want? It's like, just meat, man. I just want I just want more meat. That's what would make me happy. Absolutely. And, you kind of uh, realize just being more <laughs> present. And that's what a lot of these experiences do. It just allows you to be a little bit more present or see other people who are present. That's, for me, what I've realized is I don't give me the most peace. That's just being in those environments and realizing like, oh, over and over and over, the more experiences I do where I'm more in the present, funny enough, I feel much better. Maybe I should get into meditation. <laughs> <laughs> That's the conclusion. <laughs> Somebody's listening, going, dude, just meditate for five minutes in the morning. I like, I mean, there's apps for that. Money to like, go <laughs> no, I don't think anybody can argue with that. You like, even if it, even if that experience isn't for you, I'm pretty sure anybody can, from the outside looking in, go, like, that's that's an impressive thing to do, and you know, see what positive you could get from that. So, inspirational stuff, man. Appreciate it, man.
I uh, I thoroughly enjoyed this. Thanks for thanks for coming on the show. I would love to uh, give you a chance just to mention where people can follow along on all these awesome adventures and uh, and learn more about the franchising opportunity. If you want to throw that in there, we'll put it all in the show notes as well. Perfect. Yeah. If you guys like listen to podcasts, I host a podcast called the Remote Local Podcast. It's short from podcast, ten to fifteen minutes each episode about how to start a local business and run it completely remotely. Also talk about travel in there. Um, also, if you happen to be interested in franchising, um, pretty much copying what I did, I made this. In to your own local market. We are US specific. Um, just go to made this franchise, M-A-I-D-T-H-I-S franchise.com. Um, shoot us a note and just see if it's a good fit for you. Nice. Hope that you will uh, you will have a few clicks through to that because uh, it sounds pretty sweet and you know right up the alley of what we're trying to talk about here. So a lot of fun, man. Thank you, Neil. I've, I look forward to following along your adventures a lot closer now and uh, and hope we'll you know run into each other in person here sometime soon. Likewise, man. Good talking to you. Thanks for tuning in today from wherever you are in the world. Once again, I'm Chase, and this has been another episode of About Abroad. For those of you wondering how you can best support the show, I have made it super simple for you. Just go over to the show notes of the episode that you just finished listening to and click on one of the two following links. Aboutabroad.com slash newsletter to get our monthly newsletter. No spam, guaranteed. Or ratethispodcast.com slash aboutabroad, where you can quickly and easily leave a review for the show. It's not just important to me, it also helps more wanderers just like you find us. Finally, don't forget to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice, and we will see you again next week. Thanks again. Hasta luego, amigos.